0: We are, we've been looking through the Gospel of John, particularly focusing on the I Am sayings of Jesus, and there are seven of them in John's Gospel. And just to, just to remind us why we're doing it, um, we're doing it because if there's anything we can do uh, to help us in these days, it's get to know Jesus better. And I know at Sunday school, if you ever went to Sunday school, that they, there's a the little thing about how Jesus is the answer to everything. But actually, there is a tremendous amount of truth in that. For every doubt, for every fear, for every question, what we need is we need more of Jesus. And these, these sayings that come from the lips of Jesus himself give us this, this beautiful picture of who he is. So j- the, one, the ones we've done so far, I am the bread of life, he says. Uh, in other words, I'm the one who nourishes your soul. I am the the light of the world. He's the one that opens the eyes of our hearts and guides us in a world full of darkness. I am the gate. He's the one who gives us access to relationship with God, access to heaven. I am the good shepherd. Mike was talking about that last week. He's the one who's faithful to us to the point of giving up his own life for us. The one who prefers us um, and, and protects us and guides us and keeps us safe. I am the good shepherd. And this week it is, I am the resurrection and the life. And just to give you the context of where Jesus says this, the background is that he's got three really close friends in um, Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And they live in a little town called Bethany, a couple of miles from Jerusalem. And, uh, And then Lazarus gets ill and Jesus is elsewhere doing stuff. And so Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus. And the message just says, the one that you love is ill. But Jesus stays where he is for another couple of days, and then he turns to his disciples and he says to them, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and we're going to go and wake him up. And and they think he's talking literally that he's fallen asleep, so he clarifies it for them. He says, no, Lazarus is dead, and we're going to go back. And so they head back to Bethany, and I'll read you what happens when they arrive. This is in chapter 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for about four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So the funeral is still going. Funerals would last a long time in those days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And the story continues, uh, but I'll stop, I'll stop reading there. The, uh, this statement, I am the resurrection and the life, is huge. Basically, what Jesus is saying is uh, it speaks, something that speaks to our future, and he's saying something that speaks to the present. He's talking about what comes next and he's talking about what happens now and uh, first of all I want to just look at what what does this statement say to us about our future and uh, about what happens after death basically I've I've been reading a story um, uh, written kind of like a diary really written by a lady who's who works in palliative care over the last couple of months and um, it's it's all about her experiences working with people who are facing uh, death and just journeying with them through that process. And so it's not the happiest reading, but it's, it's certainly a fascinating insight into humanity. And one of the things that she says in it is, is how we all only have two days in our lives that don't have 24 hours in them. The first is the one where we're born and the last is the one where we die. And she says, we remember the first every year. We celebrate it on our birthday, but the last we kind of pretend or try to pretend that it's not ever going to happen. And, um, and yet it is. And one of the things that I find a bit harrowing about the days that we're living through at the moment is I've never been, um, been alive at a time where on the news every night there is literally a death, a death count. And every single one of those numbers is a person wh- who has left relatives behind, broken and bereaved and um, we're seeing almost this, the, the horror of the pandemic played out in that way in front of us. But even outside of COVID times, the reality is um, we are all gonna face death. And also what's fascinating is it's a reality that all of us face and few of us ever really talk about. So I remember a few years ago, I was invited to speak at a university and they, they wanted me to talk about what is heaven and I found myself in this coffee shop just kind of trying to prepare the talk before I gave it. And I thought, you know what, I might just ask a few people around me what, what they think heaven is. Pretend I'm doing a survey. So I turned to the guy in the queue next to me and I said, what is heaven? What do you think? You know, I'm doing a survey. And he said, oh, it's um, Liverpool beating Man United 2-0. And given Mike Sports Man United, I was inclined to agree with him about that. Then I went to the lady who was uh, behind the till, and I said, you know, I'm just doing this survey. What, what do you think heaven is? And she said, anywhere away from here. And I think she was only half joking. But most of the people in the coffee shop, as I, as I wandered around and chatted to them, they said it was kind of this, they think of heaven as an eternal holiday, as this kind of place where you are at with all your family and all your friends, and it's just really lovely. And um, I, I thought, one of the things that struck me And I know that if it wasn't a coffee shop and we drilled down into it, they might have had some more concrete beliefs. But I think the thing that I took away from it really was, gosh, how vague we all are or can be when it comes to thinking about what happens after death. All of us kind of have a a hope for the best type attitude, but we're pretty vague about it. And when, when we consider the fact that time is such... In the, in the spectrum of eternities, time, the time we have on, on the earth is just such a brief period of time. Even those of us who do really well and make it to 90 plus, it's still a relatively tiny window because time is like this and eternity just goes on and on and on and on and on. And so how can we be so vague about the, the rest? And the reason for that might well be that for, for some people they think, well, we, there's just no way of knowing what happens next. We'll find out when we get there. But as Christians, we don't think that is true. And let's go back to this funeral that was happening 2,000 years ago, the funeral that Jesus turned up at. And Martha comes out and she says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Ah, You know, she has this belief along with the Jews of the time that there was gonna be a resurrection. There was gonna be a day when everybody uh, was raised back to life again. And that was a concrete hope for her. Um, But Jesus, what he does is he takes this truth that the Jews believed, this doctrine, if you will, this teaching, and he applies it to himself. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? What he is saying is to trust in me is to live forever. And what this doesn't mean is it does not mean a Christian response to death is to, is to dismiss it and to suggest it's not a big deal. And, um, you know, sometimes I think there can be a tendency among some of us to sort of say, oh, you just got to have faith, and why are you you grieving, or why are you angry, or why are you sorrowful about death? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We'll all get raised to life again. And, And not only is that an incredibly insensitive response, but it's totally unbiblical because it's not like Jesus. And so the next thing that happens in the story, I won't read it, but Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he, he breaks down, he loses it. He, he, he cries and he weeps, and the language that's used to describe it is incredibly strong. It's language that speaks of him shaking and shuddering with emotion and overcome not just with grief and sorrow, but also with anger, with fury at death and what it's doing to people. And Jesus knows, if you haven't read the story, he goes on to call Lazarus out of the grave. The dead man comes out, is what what we're told later. Lazarus is raised to life again. Jesus knows he's going to do that, and yet he still goes to the tomb and and is overcome with tears and anger. And one of the things that that says to us is that a Christ-like response to death, particularly the death of somebody that we love, are tears and anger. Death is described in scripture as the last enemy. and, And we will face death, and it is an enemy. And so, to face it with sorrow and with grief is part of what it is, I think, to be a human being and part of what it is to be a Christian. And yet, we don't have to face it with despair because Jesus does say, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's not saying is, I give resurrection. He's not saying, I give life. He's saying, I am resurrection. I am life. And what that means is uh, resurrection and life, eternal life come to us as just the consequence, the natural overflow of knowing him. And so think about it like if if you go and stand next to a radiator, you just stand there. The natural consequence of standing next to that radiator, which is giving off heat, is that we get warmed up. In the same way, we come into relationship with Jesus and we say yes to him. And because he is in himself life, he is that which sustains the entire cosmos. John introduces us to him by saying in him was light and life and that life was the light of the world. Like, Because he is life, our coming to know him means we walk into eternal life. And... Um, What it means is, and I just think this is an amazing truth to dwell on, just to pause and consider, as Jesus' people, we are going to live forever. And that doesn't mean we won't die, because he says, even if you die, you will still live. It means we'll be resurrected. We're going to live forever, because we know him. And when we just dwell on that, one of the things that that does for me, at least, is it helps me make sense of some of the stuff that I've read in the Bible and just not totally understood. So um, there's one of these moments that has often happened for me when I've read Philippians. And for Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote from jail. And he's in jail and he's, he's, it looks like he's going to get executed, although it hasn't been decided yet. Um, and, and he says in that moment when he's kind of facing the threat of death, he, he doesn't know what he'd rather would happen. You know, he understands that the reality of his execution uh, is going to be pressed upon him. But even in that moment, he says, I don't know what I'd rather happen. Effectively, he says, I'm torn. I don't know, because if I stay alive, I can go on serving Jesus and serving you, the people he's writing to. And yet at the same time, if I die, I will, I will just go and be with Jesus, which is all I long to do. Those are my options. And, and I read it and I want to say to him, Paul, those are not your options. Your options are either life or this horrific execution, but he doesn't see it as a choice between life and death. The way that he understands it is a choice between life and even more life. And his, in, in his mind, although he understands the reality that he would go through death, he understands also that he's welcomed into eternal life. And consider the fact that he's not writing this from a palace in comfort, he's writing it from a prison cell where he, he is facing the concrete reality of his own death, and indeed that's what happened. You know, tradition tells us that in 64 AD, Paul was beheaded, he was killed. Um, but, but he knew in that space and in that place a peace that was beyond understanding to anyone who doesn't know Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life who promises us that the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. So this statement, I am resurrection and life, it speaks to our future, but it also speaks to now. And um, Martha says to him, you know, I know my brother will, will rise at the last day. And Jesus is effectively, I think the, the, the sense at least and part of what he's saying is, no, Martha, I am resurrection and life now. Now. I know you're talking about the last day, but, but you don't have to wait to the last day, Martha. I'm resurrection and life now. And he goes on, of course, to call Lazarus from the tomb, from the grave. Um, and for us, when we consider this glorious, weighty, wonderful truth that with Jesus we will live forever, the temptation might be off the back of that just to think, right, well, we've just got to hang in there and then when we get to heaven, everything will be okay. Um, but actually, Jesus is interested, incredibly interested and involved in transforming the now and transforming the world that we're a part of. He's already begun the work of bringing eternal and everlasting life to our world and to us. And um, The way that transformation happens is again, it's just by coming near to him. So if I got my phone and I kind of like have it near a a plug socket and the charger, but it's not plugged in, none of the power goes into the phone. I'd I'd be foolish to expect it to get charged. But if I plug it in, then suddenly, because the phone is connected to the mains, suddenly all the power begins to flow through the phone. And and in a kind of a similar way for us, when we say yes to Jesus and we surrender to him, we hand our life over to him, it's as if we're connecting to him. And, And the life of Jesus, the wholeness, and it's not just about everlasting life, but it's about wholeness and fullness of life, flows into us. And it transforms and it changes us. And we'll experience this in different ways depending on what our story has been and where we need to find healing. Um, but I know for me, a big part of my story is that when I became a Christian, I was 16 years old and I was, I was emotionally uh, quite closed down, quite closed off. And I didn't realise I was. I just made decisions and I didn't know any different. But then I turned up at Soul Survivor and, and I still remember looking at some of the people around me and just thinking, gosh, what am I missing? Because there seems to be a richness to the way that they are in relationship with one another, the way that they're able to express themselves that I feel like I don't have. I felt like I was living in a, a black and white world and they were living in a world of color. And I tried to, tried to be different and I tried to change, but I just, I just couldn't do it. I remember going for months and just thinking, I want to be joyful and just really struggling and not being able to do that. And what I hadn't realized is that when I'd numbed a lot of the emotion in my life, which was really a response to kind of pain and some rejection that I'd experienced, um, I numbed also all the joy too. And I hadn't realized that you can't selectively numb emotion when you shut one down, you generally shut all of it down. And what happens, uh, and it's happened over a period of years, is I got to know Jesus for who he is And I gave him my pain and I gave him my failure and I gave him those things that I just thought, I can't overcome this no matter how hard I try. And it wasn't that it all happened in a moment, but just gradually, as it were, as I plugged into the mains, as I held his hand, gradually his wholeness just began to take effect in my life. And man, is there a long way to go. But when I look back at what I used to be like, and I see now the way that I'm able to to give myself in relationships and and open myself up to people that I love, I'm transformed. And it scares the life out of me sometimes when I think about what would have happened if I hadn't met him and I haven't given my life to him. But I did, so all good. And um, what I found with Jesus is that he warmed me up and he changed me, here and now. In the New Testament, Christians go through all sorts of challenges. And uh, the ones that we read about in the book of Acts are being persecuted and they're being hunted down and they're seeing their friends die. And yet their approach is not simply, let's just wait for the end to come so it will all be okay. Actually, they have this joy in the middle of it and they have this peace and this vibrancy in those most difficult circumstances. And that comes from him and knowing him. Paul writes elsewhere in Corinthians, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And I love that because it speaks of the fact that outwardly we are wasting away. As we get older, some of us fall asleep all the time and we just can't, you know, keep our eyes open or bits start dropping off us or whatever. Outwardly we might be wasting away. Outwardly everything might be falling apart, but inwardly because we know the one who is resurrection, because we're in relationship with the one who is life himself, we're being renewed day by day. I finish with this final thought. Um, I know that even having said that, some of us will be struggling, you know, and we'll we'll be afraid of death and all of us will have moments like that. Or we'll be struggling because we're actually in the midst of an incredibly difficult time and we do feel full of despair. And what can happen when we hear a message like this where we talk about uh, the hope we have for our future and the hope we have for our present is we can end up actually just feeling even worse and beating ourselves up and thinking, well, not only am I afraid of death or struggling with the moment, but now I feel like I'm also a terrible Christian because I'm, I'm not expecting more of Jesus. And we can try and grit our teeth and will ourselves to change and try and get faith by trying really hard or something. And the solution to all of this And I've had to come back to this again and again over the last months is just to know him as we've been saying all along is to see him for who he is think about it like this Uh, this Christmas uh, Mike and I are going to be having Christmas lunch together Um, we're in a bubble and obviously we can't plan for uh, for anything else in, in terms of going to see relatives Mike can't do that and we can't do that so we've planned to have Christmas together and I'm really looking forward to it because as I've said Uh, My expectations when it comes to food and him are very, very high. Uh, The reason for that is because I've known him since I was 17 years old. I have been out for more meals with Mike in restaurants than I have with my own wife. I understand that he's Greek. I know that he's, I don't know if that's a cultural thing, I think it is, just completely over the top when it comes to food. Little signs of evidence. I mean, I'm expecting, I've had some good Christmas lunches in the past and I've had some big Christmas lunches in the past, but I'm expecting this one to surpass everything else. Um, I I just want to let you know that a few weeks ago, uh, this Christmas pudding arrived through the post (laughs) and uh, it was beautiful, sort of delicious, luxurious Christmas pudding. And Beth and I were like, oh, Mike, is so kind. This is going to be brilliant. Well, a couple of days later, a Christmas cake also arrived in the post. (laughs) a massive fruitcake covered in marzipan and just super heavy. And I was like, wow, we've got a pudding and a cake. You know, and he's thinking of the kids. They might not like the pudding, so let's get them a cake. Isn't Mike amazing? And then two days ago, a second Christmas pudding (laughs) arrived in the post. A two-pound heavy alcohol-soaked Christmas pudding. And I was like, wow, we've got another Christmas pudding just as a dessert to the the first dessert. And the... um, And Mike told me he ordered that by mistake, but this is exactly the sort of mistake I've come to expect from my dear friend, Mike. And then let me tell you something else. Yesterday, he came over to our house with a second Christmas cake, (laughs) which he said was a spare that he had sitting in his fridge. And he suggested that we start eating it now. So we did. So I know my Christmas lunch is going to be good because I've already started it. I started it yesterday when I ate Christmas cake. (laughs) And... You know what, all I needed to know was Mike was gonna be at lunch this Christmas and my expectations were set. Even if I hadn't had these puddings already, I would still be expecting that. I'm not trying to expect that. I'm not, I'm not trying to hype that expectation up. That expectation comes because he's my good friend and I know him. If we're afraid for, for what happens after death, sometimes that's just really normal and that's because we're facing something that's really scary. If we're afraid about our current situation because it seems humanly impossible, because it seems like outwardly everything is wasting away and the only emotion that springs up in us is despair and fear, again, I think that's normal because we're facing something that's incredibly hard. And the solution is not to beat ourselves up. It's simply to ask once again, who is it that I follow? Who are you, Lord? And it's to listen. One of the things that he will say to us when we ask him that question is he will say, I am resurrection and I am life. And then he'll say, do you believe this? And I think the best thing we can do, whether we feel like it or not in the moment is to say, yes, I do. You are the resurrection, you are the life. Amen.